a deep desire coming into this year and for this season of time that we are as a church is that God would grow us in the area of prayer. It's not that we want to be known as a church that prays. We do. We don't want to just be known as a church that prays by other churches out there. We want to be known and we want to be a praying church. And that is an important distinction. A church that prays merely adds prayer to the repertoire, right? It's it's just something else that we do. We, we worship through song, you know, we participate in the Lord's Supper, we study God's Word together, and we pray. But what we want to be is a praying church, that prayer for us would be as natural and as normal as breathing is to us. We don't really need to think about breathing, do we? Maybe right now you're probably thinking about breathing because I brought it up. But thankfully, we don't need to think, to, oh, yeah, I better breathe right now or I'm going to die. And, and I would that prayer would be like that for us, as natural as breathing. So as needs are presented to us, as someone shares a situation, a circumstance with us, that our, our reflexive response, our instinctive response would be, let's pray. Let's come before our Father. Now, The only way for us to be a praying church is not just for me to teach you about prayer, though we're going to do that, or not solely just teach you about prayer, but to actually pray, which is what we're going to do a little later, right? I don't have to tell you that many of us already feel bad to a degree because we probably don't pray enough. I'm sure if I asked you in this room, how many of you desire to pray more, every hand would go up. It should be our natural desire. It should be what you and I as followers of Jesus Christ would want. We would want to commune with our Lord through prayer. And, and, and if we do that as a regular part of our life, I think we would desire it even more. That we would wake up early to pray. That we would be praying throughout the day. That we would end our days in prayer. We know God's word commands us to pray. It's a command. It's the Christian duty to pray. Be watchful in prayer with thanksgiving. Command. We're told to pray. We're commanded to pray. And it should be our delight to pray. But I know many of us probably don't have that as a normal aspect of our life. And I know that in our gathering today, uh, there are people facing a variety of situations and circumstances and difficulties that they're walking through. I know there are those in our congregation that are in desperate need of relationships to be reconciled. There are those who need grace and strength and wisdom to walk through exceedingly difficult and tough things that they're going through in their life at this moment. And we're all believing and we know that it is God who needs to intervene in these things in order for there to be a change. And we know that the only way that would happen is if we would pray. Right? It would take prayer first. So this is one of the reasons we are are, are really focusing and orienting ourselves, not just for these next 21 days, but, but for the life of our church to become a praying people and a praying church. And I know that it's been my personal experience and the experience of many here that When we pray, we desire to pray more. And the more we pray, 
the more we pray, the more we want to pray. Prayer begets prayer. And that is something that the Spirit of God does in the people of God. So we're going to take the next few weeks to orient ourselves to pray more. So our teachings are going to be focused in in helping us to grow in an understanding of prayer or in some facet of prayer. No one message is going to be exhaustive, an exhaustive teaching about prayer. It is impossible to do in one message, and it's going to be impossible to do, frankly, in just a handful of messages. But it's enough to get us going. Amen? And it's our desire that we would be provoked to pray more. Help us to be specifically praying that we become that praying people and a praying church. And I believe we're going to see God surprise us with answered prayer in a lot of different things for his glory. So we're going to be in John chapter 14. Uh, We're going to read verses 13 and 14, and we're going to spend our time in a few of the passages uh, known as the Upper Room Discourse in chapters 14, 15, and 16 of John's Gospel. John chapter 14, 13, and 14, hear the words of the living God. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. This is the word of the Lord. Now, only John's gospel records this lengthy discourse known as the Upper Room Discourse. This is the time right before Jesus is betrayed and arrested, the night before his crucifixion, right? He's gathering with his disciples for the meal. And he's taking an opportunity here now to bring comfort to his disciples, right? John chapter 13, verse 1 tells us that Jesus knew that the hour had come. What is that hour? The hour for which he had come. Right, where he would make atonement for his people. So he's comforting him there because the first verse of chapter 14 tells us that he starts this discourse to his disciples with, let not your hearts be troubled. Well, why would he have to tell them that? Because their hearts were troubled. Their hearts were troubled because he, leading up to this, he'd been telling them, hey, the hour's at hand. I'm going to be leaving. It's time for me to go. The time of my departure is at hand. And he had just finished telling them, in fact, one of you is going to betray me. Oh, and Peter, guess what? You're going to deny me three times. As you can imagine, they're troubled. They're anxious. They're worried. They're concerned. They don't know what's going to happen. Put yourself in their position. Think about this. They've been with with Jesus for over three years. They had seen him do all these amazing things. They had sat under his teaching. They had learned so much. They had, they had witnessed, right, what, what all of us would desire, right, to be in the physical presence of Jesus, for him to be with us all of this time. And now he's saying, I'm leaving. I'm going. And, and, and there's going to be a period of darkness before all of those things I've promised you are, are going to take place. So let not your heart be troubled. They needed to hear those words of comfort. As you read through the Upper Room Discourse, you see that he promised to send them the Holy Spirit. That he and the Father would send the Spirit. He would be their helper. He would be like 
like Jesus was to them. His physical presence was departing, but now the Spirit would be with them. He'd be not only with them, he'd also indwell them. He would be in them, and he'd be as close to them as Jesus had been. What is striking to me in this upper room discourse is how many times Jesus repeats to them what is truly one of the most powerful promises concerning prayer found in all of the Bible. If you ask me anything in my name, whatever you ask in my name, I will do it. Do you believe that? No. Doesn't sound like you do. You know, Jesus taught his disciples a lot of things about prayer. Read it in the Sermon on the Mount, his other teachings on prayer. In fact, Scripture has a lot to say about prayer. But here, in these final moments, Jesus is giving them another reminder about prayer, about asking so he says, ask anything in my name, and I will do it. How are we to understand this particular promise? Is this an unconditional promise to answer absolutely anything that we desire or wish to pray for? Is that what he's doing here? Does he really mean that whatever we ask for, we will get? All right. Now, we know we don't build our theology about prayer or any other doctrine but from one verse, right? That's not a smart thing to do. That's how a lot of people take scriptures uh, out of context, teachings, doctrine out of context. That's kind of how cults form, right? (laughs) They take one particular scripture, right, to the exclusion of all others that might say something different or actually illuminate and bring light to that particular thing, and they run off with that. But we're not people who do that. We're good students of the word, knowing that God's word has a lot to teach us about prayer. So we can gain a robust understanding of prayer from what God's word teaches. But today we're going to look at these five occurrences of Jesus' statement about asking in that upper room discourse. And here's what I want us to leave with today. I want us to leave with today knowing that we have been invited to ask for things in prayer. And not only that we've been invited to ask for things in prayer, but that God will respond to our asking with answered prayer. Now, having said that, there is more to receiving for what we ask for than just merely asking for it, right? And that's what we want to unpack this morning. So here's how we're going to do it. First, we're going to look at, in this passage, the invitation to ask. And in this particular passage that we just read, we're going to look at the qualification for our asking. And together with the other passages in 14 through 16, we will look at the condition for our asking and lastly, the guarantee in our asking. But first, the invitation to ask. What does it mean to ask? What is prayer? Now, in our Baptist Catechism, question 105, in answer to that question, what is prayer? This is the answer. Prayer, and this is a summation of Scripture's teaching. Prayer is an offering up our desires to God by the assistance of the Holy Spirit for things agreeable to His will in the name of Christ, believing with confession of sins and thankful acknowledgement of His mercies. Now, that's a multi-week series in and of itself. 
we're not going to cover that. But that is a general uh, way of summing up, right, what is prayer? What is it? I like to offer this simple definition that I've used a variety of times. Prayer is the expression of our thankfulness and dependence on God through our requests. An expression of our thankfulness and dependence on God through our requests. It is asking God for things and then thanking God for things. That's what prayer is. And when we come, when we pray, we are coming to God. And in our coming to God, we are expressing that dependence, depending on him as the source of everything that we need and trusting him for those things. We know as we go through scripture, we see that it is God who has ordained prayer. This isn't something that man came up with. How do we get God to give us things? Hmm. Let's pray. God's the one who has ordained prayer. And he's also promised to answer prayer. And he's done this from the very beginning. And we see instances of praying right at the beginning of Genesis. We see shortly after the fall, a period of time where it says that man began to call upon the name of the Lord. Well, how did they know to do that? Because God had told them to do that. God had instructed Adam and Eve and his offspring to come to him, to call out to him. And now in Christ, we are invited into this intimate relationship with God as our father. And we can ask him for things because he's our loving father. And he's a good father who delights in giving good gifts to his children. You have been invited to ask, brothers and sisters. So ask. The verse that precedes our main text, Jesus says to his disciples there in verse 12, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do because I am going to the Father. That's astonishing, isn't it? That is a truly remarkable statement that Jesus makes. Because I'm leaving you, you're going to do greater things, greater works than I've done. Now, this is a very misused, misunderstood, and misapplied passage. So let me dispel any notions of what you might think it means. This verse does not mean that you're going to do greater miracles than Jesus did. Okay? You're just not. Guess what? You're not Jesus. You're not the son of God. <laughs> All right? You're not going to do greater miracles than Jesus. This is not about, when we read that word works, a lot of people immediately insert that word miracles there. That is not what Jesus is talking about. This is why we read our Bibles in context. We read the passages before, we read what the passages after, and now we have an understanding of what is the point of Jesus making this particular statement here. Okay, So it does not mean... That just because Jesus raised a few people from the dead, you're going to do greater miracles than that, and you're going to raise dozens of people from the dead. does not mean that. And just because Jesus multiplied a few loaves of fish and bread and fed a crowd of 5,000, that you're going to multiply a handful of burgers and fries and feed a whole stadium of people. That's, That's not the case here, all right? What is he talking about here? What Jesus was doing was preparing them for what was going to take place after his departure. And so he's casting a vision now of the global advancement of the gospel mission. The Holy Spirit was going to come upon them in power so that they would be his witnesses. And now they were going to take 
Christ's message, the gospel, to the nations. Far exceeding what Jesus had done in the span of his ministry. Think about this. Jesus' earthly ministry was limited not only geographically, right? The region of Judea, right? The region known as Palestine. And it was limited temporally. A span of three and a half years was the whole span of Jesus' teaching ministry. Small area, small period of time, right? But his disciples, right? His disciples. Look, he says, whoever believes in me. So he's not just talking about the 12 here. He's talking about all who believe, right? All of them, all his disciples would carry out his ministry far beyond the region of Judea, right? They are going to reach greater numbers of people and their impact is going to have lasting effects. Brothers and sisters, it persists to this day over 2,000 years later and all the way until the Lord's return. So what he's saying here to them is this now. Ask anything. In light of that, Whatever you ask in my name, I will do. They would need to ask because the mission they were called to was beyond them. Was beyond their reach. Was beyond their ability. Was so much more massive than any one of them could hope to accomplish. They would need greater wisdom. They would need greater strength. They would certainly need the power of God's Spirit to accomplish what Jesus had called them to do, and so do you and I. So he's inviting them here to avail themselves through prayer of anything that they would need in order to accomplish what he had called them to do. Is that not what we find them doing in the upper room as they're waiting for the promise of the Spirit? What are they doing? Praying. They're asking What are they doing after they are endowed with the power of the Holy Spirit? They're praying. They're asking. What are the apostles doing when when the people of God gather? They're praying. They're asking. What do the apostles say when they begin to be burdened by the needs of the people? And they say, listen, we can't do this. We need to devote ourselves to the word of God and to, to prayer, to asking. We find this throughout the, all of Acts there. They are praying and seeking God and asking because Jesus had invited them to do that. And in doing that, they would receive the things that they would need to do what he had called them to do. What is the limit that Jesus says here to what they can ask for? Is there a limit? I don't see one. Whatever. What's whatever? Whatever. What's anything? Anything and everything, right? Like there's no limit to what he tells them to ask for in this. So again, here's the first thing I want you to see. You have been invited to ask. You've been invited to ask. So why don't you ask? I just want you to think about that for yourself for a moment. If we've been invited to this glorious communion with God through prayer... And he's invited us to ask him for the things that we need. Why don't we do it? Now, in the context of our passage, 
we see that it's related to the furtherance of Christ's work through all of his disciples. And that alone should elevate our asking beyond the normal things that maybe occupy your prayer list and mine. If you were to compare the things that you ask for to the things that are asked for uh, in the biblical prayers, and especially in the New Testament apostolic prayers, how do they match up? Does your prayer list look like that? Most of our prayers are about easing some discomfort in our life. Most of our prayers are about escaping some difficulty that we find ourselves in or got ourselves into. Most of our prayers are about God giving us some some pain-free existence. Most of our prayer time is reduced to what uh, Daniel Henderson calls in his book, Transforming Prayer, Organ Recitals. We're praying for Bob's back and Sally's stomach and Larry's liver and Ned's knees and Harry's or Henry's heart, you know, and we're praying for God to heal, right? We prayed for that during our time of corporate prayer. Tito prayed for it at the beginning of our service, right? We spend our time many times praying for the needs of the people. And sometimes it seems like the great scope of that has to do with our afflictions and ailments. They're about our personal problems. Where we find the biblical prayers are mainly concerned with Christ's purposes. Vastly different. Now, I don't want you to misunderstand me, okay? God does care about those things. Don't hear that. In fact, we're going to talk about that in coming weeks, okay? But don't walk away here going, man, I'm not supposed to pray for that. Of course you are. God does care about every single detail of your life. He does. And he cares about your stomach and your liver and your kidneys and your back and your head and your heart and your neck and your knees and all the elbows and all the things that ail us. And he cares about your financial needs. And he cares about the situation with your job. And he cares about your relationship. So don't misunderstand that. He does care. So we want to pray for those things, of course. And God is fully able to take care of those things and meet our needs. But what does it say about us when all that we do is pray about our personal problems? What does it say about us, right, when all we do is pray for our personal needs, When this invitation to ask is a privilege that offers us so much more than just meeting our personal needs, as great as that is. So you've been invited to ask. Next, let's look at the qualification for our asking. Because it's amazing enough that you and I have been invited to ask. But Jesus also gives us the key here to confident prayer. He tells us to ask for things In his name. In his name. Asking in his name is what qualifies our prayer to even be heard or answered. But what does it mean to pray in Jesus' name? Now, I don't know about you, but I think it's the general experience of most Christians that even from their earliest moments of faith, they're taught to tag in Jesus' name that phrase at the end of every prayer. Like, you have to... In Jesus' name. I remember being taught to pray. I remember some of the classes I went through as a, as a baby Christian, right? And, and one, of the, one of the classes was on prayer, and the great emphasis was, well, you got to pray in Jesus' name. you got to pray in Jesus' name. So at the end of your prayer, make sure you say, in Jesus' name. 
right? We've all been taught to do that. We tag it at the end. The thing is, all of us have heard, right, silly and crazy prayers that have been tagged with in Jesus' name at the end of them. That's kind of cringeworthy, isn't it? Some of us have prayed those cringy, silly, and crazy prayers ourselves. Because for some people, to say in Jesus' name at the end of the prayer, is they're almost saying it like a spell, like some magical incantation, right? That it's the magic phrase we say at the end, and that all of a sudden that now is, is going to coerce God to give us those things that we desire and that we want. For some, when they hear that phrase, in Jesus' name, at the end of a long-winded prayer, they kind of get a little excited because they know the prayer is wrapping up, right? Because we know to say that at the end. But when Jesus made this profound promise and statement there, that whatever we ask in his name, he will do, did he really mean for just that his name to be tagged at the end of a prayer request as that catch phrase to unlock our answer to prayer? No. No, that's not what he meant. To understand this, let me ask you, what's in a name? What's in a name? Now, names kind of in our day and in age and culture don't really have as much significance as in meaning as they would have had in ancient times, especially in, in, in biblical times itself, right? People name their, their kids because they want to have a cool, trendy name for their baby, right? So they, you know, that's, that's how they pick names or or, you know, whatever sounds cool. Or, or they'll come up with some mashup. I want a unique name for my child. So they'll create some weird mashup of a name for their kid that people cannot even pronounce. Okay? But in, in, in ancient times, right, a name had deep significance and meaning. A name was not just flippantly chosen for a child. Okay? Uh, and in God's word, we have numerous examples of names being given to offspring that had deep significance. Many of them had deep prophetic meaning. You go through the list of generations there at the beginning of Genesis, right? Each of those names had a meaning, had significance. We come to the name of Noah, and his name had prophetic significance. The name Noah means rest. Well, what's that all about? What came during the time of Noah? The flood, judgment. And after that period, there was rest from the wickedness that had, had, had just taken over God's good earth, right? Hannah, we find her praying in Scripture, and she's barren, and she comes to the temple, and she's, she's praying to God. Well, God answers her prayer, and she names her baby Samuel. Samuel means God hears or God has heard, right? She named him that, right, as a, as a reminder that God had heard her prayer and given her the desire of her heart, How about when the angel tells Mary that the baby that she's going to conceive by the Holy Spirit, she is to name him what? Jesus, right? Jesus, for he will save many from their sins. Jesus, Yeshua, means the Lord saves or the Lord is our salvation. It has meaning. It has significance. Names are significant. Now, even if your name was maybe not chosen intentionally or with purpose, right, the mention of your name to others evokes certain feelings or certain thoughts about who you are, doesn't it? When someone mentions someone named that you know of, right, immediately something comes to mind. If that person's a jerk or a liar, right, or a bully, right, uh, 
those thoughts immediately come to our mind, or we might think of them as a kind person, a compassionate person, right? The, the mention of their name evokes something about that person that you know, right? Why? What's the deal there? Your name is tied to who you are and how others perceive you, okay? Your name is tied to who you are and how others perceive you. Here's the, here's the important thing to remember here about the name here. A person's name is about the sum total of their character. When a name is given in Scripture especially, their name equates to their character. Think about God's names in Scripture. God reveals His character, how? Through His names. Through His names. We see that throughout all of the Scripture there. When He wants to reveal to his people, that he is the Lord God Almighty, he tells them his name is El Shaddai. When he wants to reveal to them that he is Lord of all things, he is Adonai. When he wants to remind them that he is their righteousness, he's Jehovah Sidkenu. On and on and on we see the Lord revealing something about his character, who he is and as God and who he is in relation to his people through his names, and his names is his character. El Elyon, the Lord Most High. When he reveals his covenant name to the people of God as Yahweh. For them, his name was so holy and so revered that an Israelite would not even mention the name Yahweh out loud. The name of God is tied to his character. It is who he is. God's name is. Names equate to his character. So to pray in the name of Jesus then, when Jesus said to pray in my name, he's not just saying use my name as the cool thing to say at the end of your prayer. To pray in the name of Jesus is about praying in a manner consistent with his character. So that when we ask, right, when we believe that we are asking for what Jesus himself would ask if he were in our circumstance. Remember WWJD? This is WWJP, right? Said, so what would Jesus do? What would Jesus pray? Because Jesus would not pray for something that is not consistent with his character. In Jesus' in Jesus's name is an endorsement that our prayer is consistent with the character, mind, desire, and purpose of his name. Samuel Chadwick, great Puritan pastor, wrote, To pray in the name of Christ is to pray as one who is at one with Christ, whose mind is the mind of Christ, whose desires are the desires of Christ, and his purpose is one with that of Christ. Is that how you and I pray in Jesus' name? Tagging our prayer with in Jesus' name is not a prayer formula for answered prayer. It's not a spell. His name is what makes it possible for you and I to even approach God with our petitions. Apart from him, you and I cannot come to God. Apart from Christ Jesus, you cannot pray to God and expect answered prayer or for God to hear you. When we pray in his name, we are professing our desperate need of him and our trust in his righteousness alone as the reason 
that we can ask. Our confidence in prayer is not that we are worthy in and of ourselves, not that our prayers are well-crafted, properly constructed, eloquently delivered, and tagged with the magic name. Our confidence is that Jesus himself has passed through the veil, that he has made atonement for our sins, and that by his death and resurrection, you and I can approach the throne of grace with confidence to obtain mercy and help in our time of need. This is why we pray in his name. Our confidence is also that Jesus himself is presently interceding for us. He is interceding for us. Read Romans 8, Hebrews 7, 1 John 2. Jesus, from his exalted position at the right hand of the Father, is speaking for us. He's speaking on our behalf. Our prayers can be heard. To pray in a manner consistent with the name of Jesus is to pray that all that is done in his name is for his glory alone. And for his purposes. To pray in his name means that our prayers conform to his purposes. And what's his purpose? Well, he tells us there in John chapter 14, verse 13. His purpose is for the Father to be glorified in the Son. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do. That the Father may be glorified in the Son. We know that that was Jesus' entire ministry. To glorify the Father. Jesus prays in John chapter 17 for the Father to be glorified through what Jesus, not only what he has done, but what he is about to do. He's praying for the glory of the Father. To pray in the name of Jesus means we're praying in a manner consistent with his character, values, and purposes with the chief aim being the glorification of God alone. Praying in a manner where we are so in tune with Christ, having his mind, knowing his desires, right? So that we're praying in the will of God. And we're not asking for things that are outside of the will of God. When we pray in the name of Jesus, we are asking thing, for things that, that, that make his purposes our priority. Make his purposes, purposes primary and central. And when we do that, we can have confidence that our asking will be met with answered prayer that results in the glory of God. God honors prayers that are truly offered in the name of Jesus. Do you see how praying in Jesus' name is a check against the way we normally pray from a very selfish motivation? We may not think of our prayers as selfishly motivated, but they kind of are because of the kind of things we pray for and how we pray for those things. This is why James says in chapter 4, verse 3, you ask and do not receive, right? So you're praying and you're like, why is my prayer not being answered? God, why aren't you answering my prayer? Well, he says it. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions, right? To spend it on your own selfish motives and desires. And see, God is not obligated to answer any of those prayers, even if you add the magic formula at the end, right? He's not obligated to answer prayers that are selfishly made, nor is he obligated to answer any requests that are ignorantly made, because we do pray some pretty ignorant prayers. 
especially prayers that if God answered them the way we asked for them would prove disastrous for our life. And I don't think we realize that. We're praying for things at time from a very selfish place that if God were to answer those things, they would destroy us. They would wreck our soul. Thank God he doesn't answer those prayers. I thank God he hasn't answered a myriad of my selfish prayers throughout my entire life. But he does answer every prayer offered in the name of Jesus according to his will and for his glory. So as I stated earlier, there is more to receiving what we ask for than just merely asking for something. Because these repeated invitation Jesus gives in this upper room discourse include a very important condition. Look at John chapter 15, verse 7, as he continues talking to his disciples. And he says, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. Now, we like this part of this phrase, ask whatever you wish, right? Because that seems to indicate to ask like whatever I think I need or want. And that's how much of our asking takes place. What do I think I need? What do I think that I want? But it's if you, what, abide in me and my words abide. That sounds like a condition, doesn't it? And the condition is abiding. That word abide means to dwell, to continue in, to remain or stay. Abiding is all about having communion with Christ, being in communion with Christ, life-giving communion with Christ. And that life of communion with Christ and being in union with him produces his character in us and accomplishes his holy will in our lives. Abiding in him is living with Christ and in Christ in sweet communion. What does it mean to abide in Christ? It means to be ever conscious of his presence. To be ever conscious of, our un- conscious of our union with Christ. That's what it means to abide in him. Charles Spurgeon wrote that we live in him, by him, for him, to him, when we abide in him. And when you and I are in close communion with Christ, we become so closely aligned with his desires that they become our desires. Have you ever experienced that? All of us should. When we're fellowshipping with Jesus, when what all he is is what we long for and desire. When the things that Christ has expressed that are near and dear to him, that he values, that are consistent with his character, and we're saying, yes, God, those are the things that we want. That's abiding in him, right? And when we, when we have that and experience that and we pray, we're going to be praying in the will of God. As I said earlier, Jesus is not going to ask for anything that is inconsistent with his character, right? And and his his nature and his attitude and his behavior. And when we know Christ and abide with him, guess what? You and I are going to be asking for things consistent with his character. But it's not just abiding in him, right? Something has to abide in us. And what is that? His word. You abide in me and my words abide in you. You will never pray out of the will of God when you're praying the word of God. Never, ever, ever. Why? Because it's the word of God that reveals the will of God. 
It is the word of God dwelling in you richly that will now form the content of your prayer such that your asking is going to always be in conformity to his character and will. Why are we always admonishing you, exhorting you, encouraging you, right? Telling you, get into God's word, know God's word, and pray God's word. Because when you're doing that, it begins to shape your prayer. You begin to pray what God's word says. And guess what the word of God is? It contains the will of God. When you pray the word of God, you're praying in the will of God. Our asking then will be met with answered prayer. John writes this in his letter to the church of 1 John in chapter 5, 14 and 15. This is the confidence that we have toward him that if we ask anything according to his will, he what? He hears us and we know Look, that he hears us in whatever we ask. We know that we have the request that we have asked of him. You never have to worry about praying in the will of God when you're praying according to the word of God. That is confidence in prayer. Sometimes we pray for things that are in the word of God and we're like, oh, Lord, if it's your will. Yes, (laughs) it is not if it's your will. If it's in his word, it is, it is his will. If he's telling us to pray for it, it is his will. If it's one of the apostolic prayers, it is the will of God. If it's something Jesus prayed for, it is the will of God. That's confidence. And abiding in him and his words abiding you will, in you will give you confidence in prayer. John 15, 16. Jesus continues, you did not choose me. But I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide, so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. This is a continuation of that, of that condition of abiding here. And Jesus is, is, is stating here clearly that there is a direct correlation between our receiving whatever we ask for in his name and our fruit bearing. Continuing with that metaphor of abiding, he's talking about abiding in him, that the branches abide in the vine. And just as a branch abides in the vine, just as a branch is nourished by the life it draws from the vine, which will result in that branch now bearing forth fruit, you and I have been placed into union with Christ to draw life and nourishment from Jesus Christ so that our lives would also bear much fruit. He says that he is not only that, that those he has, whom he has chosen, he is also appointed to a particular purpose, and that is to bear much fruit for his glory. Now, what does it mean to bear fruit? What does it mean to bear fruit? Well, it doesn't always doesn't immediately tell us what that is, but I think we can infer a lot of things from the passage, and then we have clarity in other passages. Because Paul tells us in Galatians, in his letter to, to the Galatians there, what that fruit is. He calls it the fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit. So to bear fruit means to manifest ongoing faith and obedience to Christ, which leads to ever-increasing Christ-likeness. Because the fruit of the Spirit, right, that fruit that he's producing in the life of every believer is the character, attitude, and behavior of Christ. Love, joy, peace, 
Gentleness, goodness, kindness, meekness, self-control, faith. That's the character of Christ. Those are the qualities of Christ Jesus himself and the ones that the Spirit is producing in the life of every believer. And that fruit should be ever-growing in our life, conforming us to Christ Jesus. Abiding in him produces that. John writes in 1 John 3.22, And we receive from him whatever we ask. Again, there's the promise. Condition. Because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. The result of abiding in Christ as an obedient disciple who lives to bring him glory and to please him is powerful guidance and confidence in prayer. And Jesus said he will answer those prayers. So that's the condition. But look at the guarantee for our asking. The guarantee of this offer and invitation to ask. Where Jesus adds his stamp of authority with this guarantee when he invites us to pray in his name. He says he will do whatever we ask. He's guaranteeing the outcome of our asking. I will do it. He doesn't say I might do it. He, he, he doesn't say, I, I hope to get around to it. I will. I will do it. It is an authoritative guarantee. And it's an authoritative guarantee because it is only something that the Son of God could accomplish. If we're asking for something that's in our human wheelhouse, well, we really don't need to ask, do we? We should be asking for everything and we should be praying about everything. But he's saying here, these things that you're asking for in my name, those things I'm going to do, especially those things that are beyond you, beyond your ability, beyond your capacity, beyond your strength, beyond your wisdom, beyond your own human will to accomplish, I will do it. An authoritative guarantee in John 16, 24. Until now you have asked nothing in my name. And I, in my name, ask and you will receive it. Not might, will, that your joy may be full. And then a couple verses down, 26 and 27. In that day, you will ask in my name. And I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf, for the Father himself loves you, because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. I love, I love these verses here. Because it so reveals the heart of God here to answer all of our requests made in Jesus' name that will bring him glory. First of all, he says there at the beginning there that when you pray in his name, asking whatever it is you want to ask for, he's going to do it. Why? So that our joy would be full. Our joy would be fulfilled, right? The disciples, right, had been troubled at the news of Jesus' impending departure, but their grief was going to turn to joy that as they begin to ask in the name of Jesus, in the power of the Spirit, for the glory of God in a manner consistent with the character of Jesus Christ, they were going to be experiencing answered prayer that would turn their grief into glorious praise and worship and joy. It's the same for us. When we pray in the name of Jesus and see God answer prayer in the way only God can answer our prayer that results in His glory, we will take great delight in that. Have you not experienced that kind of joy when God has answered your prayer? And you know he answered your prayer. 
I mean, that's one of the most glorious things. But he also says that he's answering our prayer because what? The Father loves us. The Father loves you. That's so profound, brothers and sisters. Sometimes we come to God almost like as if God hates us. We come to God sometimes not even sure if God can hear our prayer. We lack assurance and confidence in prayer. Now, there may be many reasons for that. But if you doubt the love of the Father for you, and he says, the Father loves you because you loved me, and you believe that I came from him, right? You've trusted in Christ Jesus. You've trusted in his righteousness alone and not in your merits. And you're trusting that, that the reason you can approach the Father is because of Jesus. You can be assured that the Father loves you. And because he loves you, he is hearing those prayers made according to his will. And he will give us the things that we ask for. Prayer can be frustrating when all of the requests we make are our own ideas of what God should do to accomplish our will. I'll be the first to confess many times that has been the content of my prayer. God, here's how I think you should answer this prayer in my best interest. I know I'm not alone. You don't have to raise your hand or nod your head. We all do that. We all do that. We all think we know what's best for our life. We all think that if if God gave me this, if God did this, well then, everything will be puppies and unicorns and flowers and awesome. We all think that. But there is a real joy in knowing that our prayers made according to his will are being implemented in our lives and the Father is glorified in that. So in closing here, church, I want to encourage you to become the praying people that Christ has appointed you to be. To become the praying church that God has appointed us to be. Let's pray, taking Christ at his word here, that he said that every prayer, whatever it is, whatever we ask, we can ask anything if we pray it in his name. He'll do it. He will do it. Let's offer every prayer in the name of Jesus with complete confidence because we know what his name represents. To pray in a manner consistent with his character, praying with his priorities and purposes in mind and praying for him to be glorified in the answer to those requests. Brothers and sisters, prioritize daily communion with Jesus. Abide in him. Spend time with him. Get his word inside of you. And don't just do it and just say, oh, it's the new year. I'm going to pray through God's word. And praying his word is like a, you know, something we have to check off on our list. And praying is something we got to check off our list. Man, let this become our life. It's something that's so natural to you and me as breathing is, as eating is, as talking is. What would our life be like if it was like that? And we're going to see the fruit of that praying life of abiding in him, right? In glorifying God through the answer to those things that we pray for. Seeing lasting spiritual impact in our life. I've been thinking this week and just imagining how powerful 
and life-giving these times we are together, that we are together, that we're gathered together would be if we were all coming to celebrate all of the answered prayers that we have received in our day-to-day life each week. That everyone here could have a testimony of answered prayer because they've been asking for things in the name of Jesus and he is doing those things. What joy God's people would come to these gatherings with. How loudly would God's people be singing and glorifying God if prayers were being answered left and right because of the kind of prayers going out to the glory and praise of God our Father. I will leave you with this. How does he promise to answer each of those requests we make in Jesus' name? There's no better way to answer than that than how Paul powerfully expresses this in his prayer for the saints at Ephesus. In the third chapter of Ephesians 20 through 21. He's praying for the believers. He's praying according to the will of God, according to the character of Christ, with Christ's purposes and concerns at the forefront. And now all he could do is burst forth in doxology. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Church, he is not only able to do what we ask or think. That's not what he says here. He says he's able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think. That's how powerful and glorious your God is. When we ask for, what we ask for in prayer, offered in his name, is offered, you and I offer it with our infinitesimally limited Feeble mind. Feeble way of perceiving our world. And think of that in comparison to God's ability to answer our prayer in mind-blowing ways that only He can do that will result in His glory. And if we believe that, what would we pray for? How would we pray? Would our prayers be small? Would would our prayers be for things that you and I can do in our grasp and in our ability? No, we would pray bold, audacious prayers for the glory of God. Knowing that He alone can answer. And if if He didn't do it, we wouldn't have it. This is what He invites us to do. To ask for those things. So in our 21 days of prayer. In cultivating this life of prayer, brothers and sisters. Don't pray small. Don't ask small. Don't think that God can only do small things. And I'm not saying your prayer request is small. Don't misunderstand that. But he is able to do far more abundantly than whatever it is I can imagine. Whatever the most amazing thing I think God can do is nothing in comparison to what he is able to do. And I want us to pray that way. I want all of our lives of prayer to, to just, just be enveloped by that thought 
by the beauty of this doxological statement that Paul makes here. He is able. 